The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. Happy New Year to all of you. I'm Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. We are truly delighted and honored to welcome you to the first teleconference for 2019 on the H-1B cap season that's soon approaching and uh, how we can plan and strategize and share some ideas with you. On the panel today, I have with me two of our brilliant, smart, talented uh, Murthy Law Firm attorneys from the H-1B non-immigrant visa department of the firm. We have TJ or Timothy Sachet and Kevin Andrews, both um, focusing pretty much their entire time doing H-1B-related work. So we'll sort of go over, as I said, some of the a summary of what's happening. And I will have uh, um, TJ start in a minute about the new registration process because I think people are very concerned and want to learn a little bit more about it. But before we do that, obviously, I'll just a very, very brief overview and summary in terms of the annual limitation. As all of you know, that the total H-1B uh, that's allowed in the regular quota is 65,000. But of this, only approximately 58,500 are usually available since the rest of it is used for nationals or citizens of Ch uh, Chile and Singapore. And then um, we have the extra 20,000, which is for individuals who have completed a master's degree from a U.S. nonprofit or a public university. And once the, uh, the 20,000 master's quota has been used up, and that's been traditionally the policy, um, those with, uh, you know, th then the, the USCIS looks at the cases under the regular quota. Um, of course, we've been seeing more and more, and I know they weren't as fastidious about this maybe 10 years ago, but for the last three or four or five years, we've been seeing how they carefully scrutinize whether the master's degree is in fact from a for-profit or a non-profit university. Um, and also when they have approved it for somebody under the master's quota and the person then applies for an extension or change of employer, they go after that person and then deny it and say, sorry, you don't have an H-1 and you're not cap exempt anymore because you were incorrectly counted under the quota. So it's very important to really understand the case, how you're filing it, what what you're using as the reason to file it, ensuring that the university's status, whether it's for-profit, non-profit, public, et cetera, so that you don't have to regret it. So have your legal team do it. And if you don't have a legal team, of course, you can rely on the incredible, fantastic Murthy Law Firm legal team to guide you and help you through the pro crazy processes. The rules keep changing practically on a weekly basis. With that, DJ, can I jump to you? Because I know the registration process, people are concerned. What's going to happen? Will it happen for 20, uh, you know, for April 1st of 2019? You know, what are the pros? What are the cons? Mm -hmm. Just try to give us a quick overview. Sure, Sheila. So, you know, in, historically, 
USCIS, you know, only accepts about 85,000 cases. Um, but, you know, we have 200 to 300,000 individuals or companies filing cases. So that just cre- really creates a backload and, and an administrative nightmare. So USCIS has pretty much proposed two separate things here. Uh, the first thing is that there's a pre-registration process where employers will, during a set period of time, register their cases instead of actually filing a petition with USCIS. And if the case is ultimately selected, they would then have, I believe it's 60 days to then file the H-1B cap case. At that point, when you file it, you know that you already that you are already selected. So you don't go through the whole time of preparing a case that is ultimately going to be rejected in the mailroom. Um, the other proposal is to switch the order of the masters and the regular cap. Um, now they would they do the um, masters cap first, but the proposal is to reverse the order, so that this would actually increase the amount of individuals with master's degrees that are ultimately selected under the cap. Um, it's you know at this point it's it's unclear whether either or both of these proposals will be implemented in time for this cap year or if it will have to wait till next cap year, particularly the pre-registration process. There's lots of technology involved. Uh, they may want to get some h workers to help them with that. Um, <laughs> but it, it, God it's, forbid it's, such a thing should occur across anybody's mind. But we're not quite sure at this point whether, you know, especially that um, proposal would be implemented in time for this year. Okay. Yeah, so there is a public rule. This is Kevin. There is a public rule that's uh, going through the notice and comment uh stages for for implementation and I believe there's language in the in the proposed rule that says you know that their goal is to implement this this cap season but to the extent that it's technologically feasible so um, so yeah I think we'll have to wait and see but if it's any indication like how you know uh, comprehensive health care reform or anything <laughs> else that requires some technology rolls out it's more likely that we would see this rolled out in a, the subsequent year instead of the one coming up but I think we have to prepare for it um, either way. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, before I get to the question, which I'm going to ask Kevin in a second about, you know, when should cases be filed? How does the timing part of it work? When I did the introductions, I forgot to add a very important point, namely that Kevin Andrews is the attorney coordinating the H-1B department. So, you know, that's really a lot of juggling and trying to monitor and make sure with the team, the attorneys, the paralegals, how to do everything. It has been at the firm for over a decade, practically at this point. So uh, you are in outstanding hands with our incredible team here. So Kevin, question, how does this whole thing with the timing work? I mean, everybody knows April 1st, everybody knows October 1st, but what's the the juxtaposition? Sure, definitely. So uh, we have really started to think of cap season as something that's really from, you know, December, January, like now-ish up until when we file in April. So just to make sure we're all on the same page about the uh, timing, the cap season runs with the government's fiscal year. Uh, So right now we are in fiscal year 2019 with the government. And so the next fiscal year that starts on October 1st of 2019 is fiscal year 2020. And uh, so fis- October 1st is the, f- is the beginning of the start date, uh, beginning of the fiscal year. The earliest you can file an H-1B petition for the fiscal year is six months in advance. So that's why April 1st is the time for filing a cap case for the start date of October 1st, uh, the beginning of the government's fiscal year. Right now, uh, because of, and we're going to get into these different complexities and nuances, 
because the preparation and filing of an H-1B petition now in 2018 is so much more convoluted and uh, complex. Uh, complex and onerous in some ways and uncertain in some ways than it's been in many years past, uh, you know, now is like the time to start initiating the process of the case, vetting the case and, and making sure that you're optimizing the chances of success. And I know that sounds kind of odd because there's this registration thing that's looming at the same time. But as I said, until or as we said, until registration becomes a real thing, it's we have to operate under the current law until and unless USCIS uh, makes that change. But so we're anticipating changes uh, on the horizon while at the same time trying to operate uh, with you know the current business model at the same time because we're uncertain about which will be implemented in the next uh, few months or the cap season itself. In fact, one of the things uh, the client I just met with right before this conference call had asked me um, uh, whether they could actually hire the Muthi law firm by contacting us sometime in February. And I was like, whoa, 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 based on what happened last year, we actually stopped accepting cases, if I recollect, in February because it was such a huge demand, so much overwhelming because of the fear factor and because of the whole current political climate and the Trump administration. So obviously, if you all are starting to do your work, with yourselves or wanting to hire us, the earlier, the better. You can never be too early because we can start strategizing, we can plan, we can do everything. We can't file the LCA, get it certified, and actually do the final package, but we can do a lot of the legwork well in advance. Okay, so that's regarding timing. So now let's jump to the issue, TJ, if I can come back to you, about exactly which kind of cases or which kind of beneficiaries or employers would be subject to the H-1B cap, meaning which would be, who would be exempt and who would be subject? Sure. So, you know, in general, a beneficiary who has never been in H-1B status previously would would be subject to the H-1B cap. Um, and also a person who was counted against the cap in the past and has been outside of the U.S. for one continuous year prior to the filing, not prior to the requested start date of, of 10-1. Um, would also be counted against the cap, or alternatively, if they still have time left in their natural six years in H-1B status, they could choose to use the remainder of that time and and not go against the cap. But if they have used their full six years, then they do need to be counted against the cap again, unless they have a basis to extend past the six years, like an approved I-140. There are also certain physicians who've obtained J-1 waivers through the the Conrad or IGA programs, those individuals are also cap-exempt. And then some employers are cap-exempt. This is a very complex situation. There are new regulations published about this, but this includes employment at and by universities and their nonprofit affiliates, as well as nonprofit and government research organizations. But like I said, this is very complex. There are also new regulations in Jan 2017 to address this issue. Jan 2019? 2017. Jan 2017. 2017 to address this cap-exempt employment at situation. Um, So it's really important to discuss with an attorney um, to see if the the employment is or the employer is actually cap-exempt. Okay. So thank you for that, TJ. And I know most of you have a pretty good idea if you're on this conference call, and certainly if you've done this attended these sessions previously with all of us having these discussions at the Murthy Law Firm. But we think it's still important, especially because we have some new people, new HR people that join. And just to go back as a refresher as to exactly what is required to qualify for an H-1B status or H-1B petition approval. So generally, an H-1B 
is for a specialty occupation position, meaning that the job must require at least, at the very minimum, a bachelor's degree or the equivalent in the specific field. And the reason we're saying specific is because we're going to talk about that because there's a lot of questions about a generic field. It's probably not going to work. Second, the foreign national candidate must possess the required education or its equivalent at the time of filing the H-1B petition. However, there's been case law and there's been decisions or, I guess, feedback from USCIS that if the beneficiary or the employee actually has completed the actual education, the bachelor's degree, but does not actually... Um, oh, the, just the mere fact that the person has a bachelor's degree clearly doesn't mean that the job is a specialty occupation. Yes, yeah, Sheila, I think the issue here basically is about the, as you mentioned, it's about the field of study. So uh, I think the literal, the, the, the word-for-word definition of specialty occupation is a job that normally requires a degree in a specific field. And I think the most important word in that definition is the word A. So... Um, uh, if it requires a degree in many specific, many different fields, this is, you know, this renaissance position is, is not a specialty occupation by definition. And I think this is what the current USCIS is honing in on as a way to whittle away at the program through their, their policy measures. So, you know, for example, now I, you know, ironically, I, I would never file an H-1B petition that would list STEM as a, a field of study. I would never list science, technology, engineering, or math because each of these are really broader uh, um, fields that cover a wide array of fields. When I say science, I mean biological science and health science are going to be different. When I say engineering, genetic engineering and civil engineering are going to be different. There are different, there's computational and applied mathematics, uh, and of course technology is a wide array of things. So uh, for I IT positions, computer science or related, and that's it. So the other piece of this Rubik's Cube is making sure the individual qualifies. And a lot of times what comes up uh, is, oh, well, my, my uh, employee has an electronics engineering degree, so that's why we say computer science engineering or related. And that would have made sense in the past because in the past USCIS was a little bit more reasonable. When you say computer science engineering or related, they give you the benefit of the doubt to say, oh, when you say engineering in that context, you must mean something related to computer science. But this USCIS doesn't look at it that way. So I think listing computer science or related would work for an individual with an electronics engineering degree because electronics engineering is directly related to computer science. Or even if you wanted to list computer science, electronics engineering or related, it's kind of tailored, but I think um, it's much better than trying to list engineering or business or something more broad, more gen uh, generic, which might have been successful in the past, but is clear red flag to USCIS now. Absolutely. And also the USCIS is tending to scrutinize the education plus experience evaluations. They're actually requiring that the evaluators must be professors who are authorized to grant some kind of college credit for the equivalent experience at the U.S. universities. Um, and finally, the other issue that, we've, uh, that people ask us on because of the in terms of timing for graduation is, hey, if the beneficiary has actually completed the entire education but doesn't have the actual physical diploma or the degree in the hand at the time of the filing, it's fine. It's allowed according to USCIS, but the beneficiary employee still needs to obtain a letter from the school's registrar or dean or whoever is in charge to verify that the student has completed all of the requirements for that degree and is simply waiting for the actual physical copy of that degree or diploma. 
Okay, so that's the qualifications for an H-1B. Next, we want to uh, briefly touch upon what should an H-1B, like when, timing again, we come back to when you can you start actually preparing for an H-1B cap case. Kevin? Right, so like we were talking about before, the, the need to start earlier and every single year is becoming more um, uh, becoming a requirement because the demand for visas for the visas continues to be higher than the supply, even in the, with the current administration and with the current policies, because it's more a function of economy than it is a function of politics and policy. So, uh, when USCIS receives more petitions than they have visas, they start a random lo- uh, lottery process. Which means in the first five di- in the first uh, week that USCIS receives p- petitions, uh, if it exceeds the eighty-five thousand you know total numbers that they get, and I think last year it was uh, two hundred thousand Yeah, so so you know it's it's the the odds are not very good that you're going to be selected. I guess it would have been maybe about a forty percent chance selection. I guess maybe something like that last year, roughly. Um, but uh, the need to prepare and have the case ready to make sure that there are no last-minute things that's going to cause a delay and then you you know, didn't get your lottery case in, I think, is very critical. Uh, it's important to understand the process involved in preparing an H-1B case, particularly a CAP case. The thing that takes the longest to prepare is probably the LCA, the Labor Condition Application. This is an application that needs to be submitted to the Department of Labor that sets forth the conditions of labor, of work. Uh, we need to make sure that we're putting the correct job uh, uh, occupational code, we're using the right wage level, we're listing the correct work location. Uh, all of these requirements, like the LCA, po- the posting notice has gone up before the LCA is submitted. These are critical things to get done. And the LCA takes like seven to 10 days for USCIS, I'm sorry, for Department of Labor to certify. And that's assuming that, you know, the their systems are working perfectly. This is an online submission. So coming back to the discussion of technology, you know, the website we submit this to, iCert, it does crash. You know, just like any other website that gets uh, barraged with users, it can have, uh, you know, overload and, and the system crashes and that causes delay that could actually translate into somebody like losing their chance. So uh, we just, you know, want to come back to this topic of, you know, here's all the reasons why it's so important to, uh, to stress uh, stressing the importance of preparing the case early, um, even if you're motivated to prepare the case early, there are technological and other logistics that could get in the way, and you want to avoid those things by starting the process as early as possible. Okay, thank you, Kevin. Um, I know the other question that's often asked, I guess, for you by you all, for you all, by your employees who are working maybe on the F1 OPT or the STEM OPT extensions are, okay, my. Um, you know, status expires in the summer because generally they graduate in the summer. And so what happens because the H-1 obviously won't start till October 1st. So TJ, can you explain how that process works? Sure, sure. So in, in general, if you want to change status and changing status is pretty much telling USCIS, hey, give me a new I-94 card for this new status. Don't make me travel. Um, you need to show that at the time of filing in, in April for your cap case that you are maintaining your status until September 30th. And then 10-1, the H-1 takes over and you have your change of status. So if you're an H-4 status, you need to show that it's valid until at least 9-30 of that year. 
However, there is you know, an exception for when the beneficiary is in F1 status. Uh, this situation is a little different. There are new rules that, that allow the individual to stay in the United States during this time. Um, so essentially, if the F1 students, if their status, their, um, you know, their program or their OPT ends prior to September 30th of that fiscal year, they may be eligible for an automatic cap gap extension until uh, September 30th, when 10-1, if their case is approved, they would pick up an H-1B status. This is assuming, however, that there are four conditions that must be met. Uh, first, the petition must be filed um, before the o end of the OPT or the applicable 60-day grace period. Uh, the petitioner must also request a change of status on the H-1B petition and an October 1st 20, uh, you know, 2019 start date, not October 2nd, it's got to be October 1st, and the case ultimately has to obviously be approved. Um, so this, this cap gap extension would s starts when the current F1 status ends, regardless of whether the person is in OPT at the time. Um, if the student is at, in OPT at the time of filing, then the OPT work authorization also extends until September 30th. Um, but it's, it's important to note that if you're on CPT and that ends, that does not automatically extend by the basis of the, the H-1B filing. It's only the OPT that allows you continued work authorization. And this continued work authorization only goes until September 30th. If your case is still pending after September 30th, then you are not permitted to keep to remain working. Um, you are in what's called a period of authorized stay. You don't have permission to work but you can stay until a decision is made on your case. Um, and then if, you're, if your case is ultimately rejected, denied, or revoked, then your cap gap extension will terminate as of that date. Yeah, and I think um, that what you mentioned about not being able to work after September 30, like this probably didn't come up as often in years mm -hmm. past because USCIS would usually adjudicate most of the petitions before October 1st, and we're not... We're not seeing that as much now. Yeah. We have a lot of RFEs um, that are only being issued after October yeah. uh, 1st. I think it's actually more the rule now that we're getting decisions well after October 1st. You know, lots yeah. of times RFEs aren't issued till late summer. Some cases are still pending now. I know I have one or two that are still pending from last cap year. Yeah, with um, no RFE, no nothing. With no just RFE, receipt. just, just yep. receipt notice, yeah. you know, and... Hey, if you've got OPT for, you know, your STEM OPT, then you, you don't really care as long as you, you know, ultimately get a decision. Right. Um, and then I think uh, a last point is, is it's important for the, the student who's in this cap gap situation to contact his or her um, DSO to get an updated I-20 to reflect the cap gap. The DSO is not going to automatically do this for you. So as soon as you file the cap case, I think it's important to talk to the DSO. Right. And one more, a couple more things is one is the CVIS, the Student and Exchange Visitor Information System. The CVIS program, CVIS basically recommends that students should not travel outside of the United States during the cap gap extension because by law, as most many of you hopefully know, any change of status that is filed and the person then departs the U.S., the change of status is deemed abandoned by law while that application or petition is pending. However, if the student travels abroad after the approval, then it's a little bit safer if you're coming back on the F1 STEM OPT, if you still have it in some cases. And with everything that's been going on, we're even telling people if you have three years of your STEM OPT, 
maybe you don't really need to file your H-1 right away. I know all these years people have been doing it because of the wanting two or three bites at the apple. But if the net result is going to be that you lose, you get your H-1 denial, and now they've said you're out of status, as they're doing with a lot of people, for, especially if you're working with consulting companies, then you lose that, you lose this, you basically are in much worse shape than if you enjoyed without worrying, hopefully your three-year F1, you know, OPT or your STEM OPT or what have you. Sheila, do you think uh, middle path might be filing the cap case, that first one for consular? You know, that way you're not risking... Hopefully they won't, but we're seeing even when people are asking for consular, sometimes they're coming back. Somebody else recently was telling us that they applied for a consular case, but the U.S., I don't know if it's poor training, lack of training, or they're just being told, give people a hard time and come up with any excuse to deny cases. Yeah. Oh, you're talking about a case where they were que- they still questioned something about status, even though it was it not It should have been irrelevant that, because yeah, it was a consular process. I think th- hopefully that was one anomaly and not a trend, but... Yeah, that's, that's I don't know. With the, tr- with the current administration, I just I just wonder about who's telling you or training you to do what. Right. Also, uh, if the beneficiary is obviously if the employee, if your employee is not in F1 status or if the current status of the person ends prior to October 1st and if the person cannot maintain the other non-immigrant status until September 30th, then obviously that person, that candidate or beneficiary will not be able to obtain a change of status approval within the United States from the USCIS. In this case, the petition should be prepared for consular notification. Um, And once the H-1B petition is approved for consular notification, then the employee has to depart the United States or may have already departed the U.S. during the process of filing the case before the prior status expires. And then the employee will need to re-enter, obtain the visa abroad for H-1B, show it, enter at the port of entry, show it to CBP, and hopefully obtain the I-94 card at the airport or port of entry. And clearly issues regarding changes of status are fairly complex, and you need to understand the ramifications rather than messing it up or having somebody get a denial down the road. Okay, so now that we touched, we thought we'll go into a lighter mode, which isn't light at all if you have to pay the fees, the crazy, crazy USCIS fees. The fees keep increasing while the quality of service keeps reducing. Cannot happen in any of your businesses, yours or mine. The only time it could possibly happen is if you're the government because you have a monopoly in issuing H-1s. And so what are the filing fees, Kevin? Uh, yeah, so the filing fees have pretty much stayed the same. There is a $460 uh, just basic filing fee that's required. Additionally, there is a $500 uh, anti-fraud fee. You're pay- basically paying the government the fees for them to do their anti-fraud e- efforts against you. And uh, then there's also a training fee, which, again, that seems like that needs to be <laughs> increased because of uh, what we're seeing for the adjudications, but it's a $750 training fee if the company has 25 employees or le- or fewer, and uh, $1,500 if it's 26 or more. Uh, there's also a $4,000 border protection fee, which was signed into law by President Obama. Um, and this fee, this $4,000 fee, is required if the employer has more than 50 employees and more than 50% of the workers are in H or L status combined. Um, and that's that, that fee would be required with the initial filing. These fees, uh, generally speaking, should be paid for by the employer. The employer should not seek 
uh, reimbursement from the employee. Uh, legal fees and f- government filing fees should be paid for by the employer to comply with the law. And um, one exception, though, would be the premium processing fee, which has increased from 1225 to 1410. But that's, of course, assuming that premium processing is even going to be available, which, based on the last uh, at least two, three years, yeah. it's been suspended uh, for cap the cap season in the last several years. So I would expect the same to be the case uh, coming for, for this cap season coming up. The whole thing is crazy. The many were describing the anti uh, fraud fee saying, hey, you're paying the government to com- conduct fraud against you and your company. And even if there are some bad apples, majority, it's the same like saying, you know, people who violate the law are criminals or what have you. It's part of the general population. But to tell, it's almost like if, when you were talking about it, it almost felt like when you were saying, okay, you know, someone's going to come and be a thief or rob your house. And you're like, okay, I'll give you the bus ticket or the cab money to come come all the way to my house so you can basically steal my stuff. It almost feels like it that. It feels like it when they itemize it in that way. In, you know, right, like. right. It's very annoying. Anyway, going on to that, to some of the very common troubling issues that we have been all encountering, particularly IT consulting companies with H-1B petitions, and so the most of the common issues that many of all of us, hopefully, on this call, even if you're not a consulting company, you're seeing it, but some of them are being targeted at consulting companies, are proof that, yes, there is an employer-employee relationship between the parties. Second, that the job duties, in fact, constitute a specialty occupation. Three, that whether the qualifications of the beneficiary truly, truly are in the specialty occupation and are directly related to the particular job that you're saying is an H-1 specialty occupation? And fourth, you know, do we have to approve the extension of status or the change of status for this employee because has the person actually maintained valid status, whether it's on F-1 OPT or B-1, B-2 or H-4 or what have you? Uh, so now let's delve into each of these in, in greater detail. So let me have... TJ then gets started with the employer-employee relationship, especially because we had the memo that was released less than a year ago, last February 22nd of 2018. TJ? Sure. So this is pretty much what I spend my day dealing with every day and talking about every single day. Um, Essentially, the the right to control um, the employee's work and also the availability of that work. And this is, you see this come up as an issue more often in the third party placement situation when the employee, the H-1B beneficiary, is not actually working at the employer's physical location. They've been sent to a a third party work site to perform their work. And in these cases, it's, it's really important to demonstrate that the employer has, even though they're not sitting next to each other, has the, the right to control the manner and means by which the work is done, and that this control will, will last for the entire duration requested. And these days, it's, it's not atypical to, to not sit next to someone that you're controlling. I mean, there's electronic communication, there's Skype, there's you know, all sorts of things where you can actually control your work. I think sometimes USCIS is living in this 20th century world where they see this as not possible when it, it certainly is. Um, but USCIS must ultimately be able to, to determine. I wonder if they would say that to almost every employee or that has maybe remote work for their employees or global teams that work together. I guess they can't interfere with global, with outside of the United States. But in the U.S., they could potentially challenge every employer. Yeah, yeah, especially the ones petitioned for H-1Bs. Well, but um, those are the ones that USCIS controls. Controls, exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, so what USCIS wants is to, is to determine through the evidence submitted by the employer if the employer has sufficient level of control 
over the, the specialty occupation um, work, especially when the employee is placed at a third-party location. Uh, some of the factors that they look at include whether the petitioner, the employer, has the right to assign additional duties to the employee, um, the extent of the employer's um, discretion over how, over when and how long the employee will work, who provides the instrumentalities and the tools needed to perform the job, the training, the, you know, the computer, the laptop at the site, et cetera, and then the duration of the project. If an, if an H&B worker, this is the third party you know, placement situation, will be working on specific client projects, there, there really needs to be evidence um, of the projects in the form of contracts and the applicable purchase order or statement of work and a letter from the end client. And if there are mid-vendors involved, all the contractual documents relating to the mid-vendors should also be submitted. Now in the past, letters were generally sufficient to show these relationships. Um, recently with the February 22nd memo, it's increasingly important to also provide the contract and the, the statement of work, which generally describes the actual work that will be performed. Um, USCS, they... Uh, I was going to say, like, uh, so when I say this to a client, <laughs> especially for a cap case, um, I sometimes get a lecture about the short-term nature of the pro how the projects work. And, Kevin, this is uh, January, February. How are you asking me for, you know, a purchase order that's available now that's going to be valid all the way until beyond October 1, 2019. That's impossible. What do I do? That's a, that's a tough one because USCIS is increasingly requesting these contracts. And one thing is to, you know, get a letter confirming that the, the project will be extended, pat, you know, for whatever duration that you request. Um, are you telling any, your clients anything specifically? Um, well, I was just saying, like, that's the, the feedback that I get. Yeah. And I think, you know, in for you know, cap cases, I think we have to look at it a little bit differently than amendments and extensions. With an amendment and extension, you know the project's going to be available much sooner than the cap case because mm -hmm. of the timing issue. In the past, we've gone through a whole array of strategy. Let's file with uh, as few documents as possible. Let's file mm -hmm. with as many documents as possible. And I think uh, we're going to have to rethink that strategy again mm -hmm. for this year. But at the end of the day, there are going to be a lot of people that say, I don't have that much or I don't have anything even. Um, I, I think... You know, with with some like one of the new policy memos is perhaps USCIS would deny cases without an RFE. Mm -hmm. We haven't seen that yet, but you know, are they setting up all these tools to be able to play this game in the next cap season? You know, are they setting the, the foundation for all those things? So, um, I, I don't have an answer. I, I, yeah. I was just I was just throwing that out there that it's it's a frustration that I think our clients are collectively experiencing, um, and you know, just another element of uncertainty with the next cap season this year. Yeah, it certainly makes it extremely difficult when you've got six months to wait, because I understand that projects are only usually valid for six months at a time. Um, you know they'll be extended, but USCIS generally doesn't care that they should be extended. They want to see right now how long is the project valid for, and that's generally what they're giving you if they do approve the case. Um, and, yeah, so they, they're, they're you know, m remaining very strict about the period of time they're giving you. If you ask for three years with a client letter and contract, say, one year, they're just going to give you one year, um, whereas before... Except I think that there's a lawsuit that's going to be filed or has been filed mm -hmm. about right. this whole issue of our timing because the regulations never require... Because even I, I don't have any clients, but at our business, any business, I can't tell you 
you know, Kevin, I don't know what I'm doing. How can I tell what others are doing, which company and which cases you might file a year from now or two years from now? And so this whole issue about all that the employer has to promise is to pay the prevailing wage and cannot bench the employee and that this whole thing about timing and speculative employment, all of that is based on proposed regulations that were never put into place and absolutely the government, what the government, what the USCIS is doing under the Trump administration is completely ultra virus slash illegal in violation of the statute and the regulations. And I hope they really wake up because they are really, really crossing boundaries. If they want to eliminate the H-1B consulting company model business, they should just say so. They can't collect fees, cash in the checks, take it in, and then say, we're going to deny 90% of your cases. That is ridiculous. The other thing that we're seeing also is that in order to really help you know, the H-1B employers at the multi-law firm, we sometimes are willing to contact the mid-vendors and the end clients when and if necessary to explain the USCIS requirements and the importance of submitting certain those documents as proof rather than kind of putting you in an awkward position to have to deal with it. Kevin, you wanted to say something else or add something? Uh, yeah, I and mean, it's related to what you just said also, Sheila, the, uh, you know, and what TJ also said about duration. I mean, duration is probably the biggest new issue right now mm-hmm. um, because, uh, you know, as TJ mentioned, we, you know, we're, we're dealing with cap cases from last year still even and uh, responding to RFEs. And I don't know about you, but I've seen a lot of, cap cases approved last year only valid until December 31st mm-hmm. and uh, because that's what the purchase order said on the petition and uh, then these employers have other cases with the same purchase order that are pending and they're like what do we do well in a lot of cases what they decided to do was to file an extension even though the prior case is still pending seeing how USCIS is backdating the approvals um, Sheila you had a case uh, that and, and we I, I just remembered thought of it uh, you had a consult with someone who got a petition approved for one day I don't know if you remember this. Yeah. Um, and and they it was like, you know, whatever the month and was. And some of them were getting approved with a retroactive date in the past. Mm-hmm. Right. Because the project got over and they took eight months to approve it. So Now, what we did for the one in the that was approved for one day, we filed a non-protunc. And we said, you know, had the employer known that USCIS was going to start, uh, you know, backdating the approvals to the match the, the SOW, they would have prepared the subsequent petition, even though, you know, we're still waiting on USCIS to approve petitions, because now USCIS is taking a long time to approve petitions, but they're giving you a shorter duration. That's a recipe for backdated, uh, across the board, backdated petitions. So we submitted it non-protunc, and we actually did get a backdated approval from 8-1, wow. uh, you know, whatever the, st- the day after. Mm-hmm. But until 1231, because guess what the SOW expiration is now? Yeah, so, I mean, we, we eliminated oh. the unlawful presence, but the argument that I used to say, oh, well, we didn't know. And now they're like, well, now you know. So, oh. <laughs> but it, it was successful in that case. My, what I, The takeaway from, that I got from that case is, hey, maybe you can get a, get a pass on this maybe once from USCIS, but until that lawsuit or something more substantive comes out of this duration fiasco, mm-hmm. uh, we have to operate under the assumption, I think, that the SOW is like the I-94 card when you're working at a client site, mm-hmm. and unless you want to be one of these people that just fight it, uh, the way to prepare for it right now until the lawsuit pans out is to f- more more petition filings, which I think frustrates a lot of people. Okay. I know we're always very cognizant of the time, and we usually try to wrap up in less than 45 minutes, and I see we're getting very close to 38 minutes right now. I think we can Close make it. to 40 <laughs> minutes. So if in two or three minutes we can briefly touch upon the specialty occupation issue, Kevin can talk about the field of study, choosing the correct SOC code. The RS- we just talk, touched a little bit upon you know, corresponding to wage level. And then maybe we'll have TJ jump into a couple of the other issues. 
Yeah, so we just had a couple of other uh, final points like to just discuss about uh, the issues. So specialty occupation, we mentioned about the field of study, limiting the field of study to a specific field of study and not listing too many others to be considered, uh, you know, more than one. Choosing the correct SOC code is really important. Uh, making sure the job duties that you're using are clearly aligning with the SOC code that you're selecting. You got to look at onetonline.org for the you know the dictionary of SOC codes and look at those descriptions to make sure that the duties align with the code. Don't copy paste these duties from the code. Just make sure that your duties are aligning with them. Um, some codes are are subject to a little bit more scrutiny than others. I think one that I would don't I feel comfortable specifically mentioning is that computer systems analyst fifteen eleven twenty one is subject to much more scrutiny and uh, higher denial rate these days. And if you look at some data that DOL keeps, like for example, the ONET says how many people in this profession have a bachelor's degree. Well, now ONET says that CSA is only forty six percent have bachelor degrees. So that doesn't sound very you know normal statistically. Uh, but th- that's the only one I, that, that's like really jumping out at me mm-hmm. as like a, a major one to watch for. The other thing that correlates to this is the wage level. So we're in the we're in the Make America Great Again, you know, mode. The Buy America, Hire American executive order says make sure the H-1Bs are awarded to the highest paid and most skilled workers. So what we see when it comes to highest paid is the higher the wage level, that seems to translate into a higher uh, chance of success. That can be very frustrating for cap cases when these are mostly people transitioning out of school and you'd presumably be more filing level one, level two than level three, level four because they're not that advanced in their career yet. At least they shouldn't be. Um, And uh, when it comes to beneficiary qualifications, I think this is the second part of that Buy American, Hire American uh, note about making sure the H-1Bs are awarded to the highest paid and most qualified. So when it comes to most qualified, generally speaking, Individuals who are trying to qualify for IT positions with non-IT education combined with IT experience can still get through, but they're going to experience a little bit higher scrutiny. Uh, The experience letters are critically important to make sure that you have very detailed experience letters that tell a story of how you acquired your, your different accomplishments and your different achievements that shows it's the same type of uh, education and knowledge acquired through your experience, the same that you would get in an academic setting. Um, and then last thing, and I don't know if you want to add anything to this, TJ, because I know you see a lot of this about maintenance of status, is what we're seeing in the RFEs about maintenance of status. USCIS is really cracking down on people's use of uh, early use CPT or day one CPT, I've seen it called mm-hmm. in the RFEs, and also sometimes STEM OPT at third-party work location. There was some controversy about that earlier this year where USCIS said you can't ever do this. I think there was a successful law- lawsuit to re- uh, rein that back in a little bit. But at the end of the day, the employer does need to show how they are controlling and supervising the work and training the individual who is on STEM OPT but while working at the third-party location. Mm -hmm. And if the supervising employer doesn't have a physical presence there, I think that can be still difficult to document. Yeah, I think the best case is really to have a physical presence at the the third-party work site, Um, especially since the the recent um, August memo that USC has put out, which essentially said individuals in F1 status who violate their status are unlawfully present as of the date they violated their status. So some of these individuals may not even know that they are, you know, are unlawfully present until it's too late. So I think it's very yeah, important. Yeah, that, that's really, it should be sued. They should be sued because I can't, I can't say you're liable for a crime or for something so egregious and so onerous, like a 10-year bar on your life. 
because I just look at you and I say, I say so, and you don't even know you were possibly, I mean, those that are clear violations, I can understand mm -hmm. if you've done something completely illegal, but they're going into such slippery slope gray areas that it's very tough, especially kids who are not familiar with the country and the culture and the, a lot of the things to understand nuances of certain things. Um, anything else you want to add? I think today? a lot of it is okay. subjective, so it's really hard to say. There's no bright line that says, yes, this is a violation. No, this isn't. It's very subjective, so it's it's very unfair to to make someone's you know ability to remain in the United States dependent on adjudicator A, adjudicator Joe's view of the issue. Absolutely. And especially and when there's this DSO that says it's okay yeah. and that's like reasonable reliance. And that's, the, to that's supposed to be the agent for the university, the designated right. school official, mm -hmm. international student advisor, who's supposed to be taking care of the students and their well-being, which clearly a lot of times uh, it's not even their fault. The rules are changing so quickly and they're not necessarily trained or in the, the universities not, don't, do not always invest enough. But they're not the ones training. held accountable. And they're not held, mm -hmm. but they end up who's picking up and paying the price for the it, students. obviously the students and right. their families. So so I know we're trying to wrap up in the next couple of minutes, but as you can well imagine, we at the Murti Law Firm, we absolutely monitor what the USCIS is doing based on the cases that come to us, the consultations, the RFEs and the notice of intentions to deny, et cetera, that we keep getting. And so we can monitor what's happening across the different USCIS service centers and different officers and across the country what we're seeing and use the, the, the tips and the strategies that we learn to share it with you as our clients to help you so that we can be more proactive and hopefully fight and get approvals for you. Um, also, please remember that all of the information that we provide is always guidance and not case-specific legal advice, especially when some people listen to it weeks or months later, or maybe years later, especially with all of the rapid changes happening with the uh, administration under the current political climate. On behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, Kevin Andrews, TJ, and the entire Murthy Law Firm team, we want to take this opportunity to wish you, your families, and all your loved ones and your staff a very happy new year. We hope that 2019 will certainly bring us good tidings and better stuff than what we've all experienced in the past year or two. And um, with, with everything going on, and thank you so much for making time to attend our monthly conference call series, and we wish you a fabulous afternoon. Thank you. Bye-bye. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.